I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Our lives depend on it, and we rarely even notice it. But when it flickers or shuts off, we feel frustrated, powerless. We're talking about the electricity grid, one of the great wonders of our modern industrial age. And as we've been reminded recently in Texas and then last year in California, the grid is fragile. How to protect and improve the grid with Gretchen Bakke. It's not just that electricity is a modern marvel. It's that it almost starts to feel like a natural right. And I think that this was true before, but with the pandemic, we really feel how important electricity is just being connected, being alive, knowing what's happening in the world. Everything is plugged in. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? A recent report card by the American Society of Civil Engineers gave the U.S. energy infrastructure a D+, saying that without greater attention to aging equipment, capacity bottlenecks, and increased demand, Americans will likely experience longer and more frequent power interruptions, blackouts. What happened last month during a sudden freeze in Texas may be a needed wake-up call. Nearly 4 million people were without power, and the power grid, a lot of people don't know this, the power grid came really close to collapsing for weeks or months. It was a major calamity, could have been even worse, but it doesn't have to be that way. Gretchen Bakke is our guest. She's the author of The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future. She's a visiting professor of anthropology at Humboldt University in Berlin. Gretchen joins us from there. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for inviting me to come. Before we discuss how to fix the grid and our relationship with it, let's talk about Texas, which was hit very hard recently. What happened there? So there are a lot of things that came together to make Texas such a tragedy. Um, The first, of course, was very unusually cold weather. Texas has had cold snaps before. They could have taken action to winterize. They did not take those steps. Then the, the historical problem, of course, is that Texas has its own electric grid. And there are two reasons for this. In the U.S., we have three electric grids. We have one for the West. We have one for the East. And Texas has its own. Um, And the reason for this is twofold. One is that it allows Texas to secede from the union because they simply could disconnect and, and produce the power for themselves. 
And the other is that federal oversight of electricity systems actually is monitoring electricity which crosses state lines. So Texas produces its own electricity. And because of that, it doesn't have the same regulatory oversight as other pieces of the grid. And this was an issue in what just happened. But the major issue was that Texas simply physically could not import more electricity when they suffered a shortfall. So even though Texas is a huge state, as a power grid, it's pretty small. It sounds like they came close to an even worse catastrophe. What happened? Well, the... There are moments on the grid where if you let it get too far out of balance, that you can actually destroy the hardware. So you can begin to destroy lines, for example. And then once those lines are out, you have to replace them. So it's not a matter of fixing things up. Um, It's that you have months and months of work to do. And so... You know, we look at what happened in Texas and say this was a horrible situation, which it was. Um, And people sitting in command centers in Texas trying to make decisions very, very quickly that would actually save the grid from this two to three month kind of destructive cycle that could have happened. Um, People began to really understand that things were going to go very, very poorly. Load shedding, which means just sort of blacking people out, just getting rid of demand on the grid, was a way to save the system. Gretchen, you've said in the past that energy is a product that has to be used fresh. And by fresh, we don't mean days or hours. We mean seconds. Explain. Yeah, so electricity on any given electricity system has to be produced and used within about a minute. And I think most people don't understand that we can't actually store electricity. So electricity is always being made and being used in sort of this beautiful balancing act um, between production and consumption. And when things get out of balance, it's very hard to fix that. Was there any one part of the system to blame for what happened in Texas? Uh, The state's governor, Greg Abbott, for instance, blamed frozen wind turbines. Was he correct? So the wind turbines, most of them did keep working, um, but not all of them. They need to be winterized as well. It seems like the largest problem was actually the natural gas network. That was because instrumentation panels froze, pipeline froze. And of course, in this hasty control room moment, some uh, natural gas power plants actually had their electricity cut. Um, And again, one thing that most people don't realize is that you need the power on to run a power plant. So this has turned out to be the most fragile piece of the system was actually natural gas, which... Of course, uh, we rely on more and more in our electricity system. It used to be coal that was the bedrock. And of course, in Texas, one of the things that Texas has managed to do by providing their own regulatory environment is install huge amounts of wind energy, um, much more than any other state in the country. And uh, those wind turbines, for the most part, did continue to produce power Uh, during the outage, but you simply can't turn the wind up. That's the problem. And this causes this feeling of frustration, of impotence in the face of what was effectively a natural disaster. A lot of people have focused on what's distinctive about Texas in, in turning this weather disaster into an energy disaster. But it's also something of a wake up call for the entire grid, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's something about the history of Texas, the idea that you could be independent and therefore free. It's not so much the problem that Texas is mostly disconnected. It's that it doesn't have the capacity to connect. I think one of the things to learn from that is that to be able to connect to or disconnect from the larger system is actually what is providing resilience to the larger system. And this is something that we see more and more as the weather changes. By that, what I mean is the grid is in fact built for particular local conditions. And if those conditions are not the ones that we have, then it doesn't work as well. You need to be able to disconnect pieces of it or reconnect pieces of it as a way to create a very sort of more flexible, more resilient grids so that you don't go down so thoroughly. So you might have a blackout, but it's shorter. Um, and so this, I would say, is the number one lesson to take home from what happened to Texas is that disconnection is not the problem. It's the lack of ability to connect that's the problem. You are a professor of anthropology, and here we are talking about the technical issues of the power grid. What got you interested in this field? So strangely, it was a storm. I grew up in Oregon, uh, rural Oregon, which has the second most outage minutes of any state in the country. The first is, of course, Texas. And my power was out all the time when I was a kid. And in 2007, there was a huge storm, actually. They call it the Great Gale of 2007. It was essentially a hurricane. Um, what happened in the wake of the storm is that people changed their minds about their relationship to electricity. And they sort of lost faith in what they were calling the government. Um, and in this case, it would have been the utility, but that didn't matter. It didn't matter the specifics. It was just that there was this kind of like turning away from what was being provided toward a kind of individual self-reliance. And I had never seen people lose faith in infrastructure. So as an anthropologist, it was that that brought me into it. It's like, can you imagine saying like, I don't believe in my sewer system anymore. I'm going to go and like get my own sewer system. You know, I'm going to build it for myself. Um, if you're hooked in, that's sort of what we did in the 20th century. Like the 20th century was about building all of this infrastructure and then hooking everybody into it. Very, It was very striking to me that there was this sort of turning away from that, not unhooking, but actually just sort of saying, if you provide the electricity, we're fine with that. And if you don't provide it, we're going to take care of ourselves. And then I said, okay, what is the grid? Like, what is going on with this system? And since then, what we've seen is an absolute boom of renewables, which has caused a lot of stress. So the book is actually about that. But that's not what drew me into it. On your website, you say you're interested in what people do when systems they rely on stop working. And you ask, what do people make of things when all that is solid fades unexpectedly into air. I love that phrase. Yeah, and, and what we have seen actually since 2007 till now, so almost, well, I guess, 15 years, is that there has been a lot of individual intervention in the electricity system. And they're always working within constraints, what is given regulatorily, what is given by the government, what is given in terms of um, tax breaks, all of these things. But nevertheless, it's individual people largely who are driving, especially solar, 
into the mainstream. You would think that questions about the best way to power the grid would be purely technical or engineering questions, but social and political values also play a big role in that. You know, you've mentioned that people in Texas, some people were critical of alternative energy, wind energy as maybe being part of the problem, but people who tend to be conservative might also find themselves drawn to the idea of, say, solar power and, and, and something that could provide them some independence from a bigger system. Yeah, absolutely. The day that um, President Trump was elected, I was with the Minnesota Solar Association, which was a lot of uh, gray-haired hippie types, right? Like you could kind of imagine the Minnesota Solar Association. A lot of and ponytails, they, right? Thanks, <laughs> a lot of ponytails. And, and they said, this is the moment. This is the moment that solar goes mainstream. And the reason for that is because finally they were going to be able to have a conservative adoption of this technology. And in Minnesota, in fact, it has been completely bipartisan. So coming back to the cultural side of things, I think I mean, we can say that the way that electrical infrastructure is is designed, there's always a cultural push to that. But in the US, there's also always a business push to it. And the form that the energy infrastructure has in the US is always linked to how you can make money off of the system. And I think that's something that people forget too, is that our ideas about how a business should be run have changed over the last 120 years. In what way is the electricity grid a modern marvel? Yeah, I mean, if we talk about last year, 2020, it's really the year of electricity because um, as everybody is stuck talking to your grandparents on a computer, it's not just that electricity is a modern marvel, it's that it almost starts to feel like a natural right. And I think that this was true before, but with the pandemic, we really feel how important electricity is to just being connected, being alive, knowing what's happening in the world. Everything is plugged in. That brings us on to the need for reliable electricity. And with climate change, carbon-emitting fossil fuels are likely to be phased out. So this is a tremendous challenge, the reliable delivery of power, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you have, you have two different things happening, I think, simultaneously. One is that there's a kind of awareness that if you emit a lot of carbon with your power plant, it's going to come back as a storm and it's going to knock out your power system. And then there's a complication of stopping that kind of CO2 intensive electricity production. And then you have to think, okay, how do you replace those things? But then really creatively, you can also think about how you adjust demand on the grid. And that's one of the things that has been really interesting is that historically, the U.S. electric grid was made so that people could use as much electricity as they wanted, whenever they wanted, for a very fair, one could say, cheap price. And what we're seeing now is that, well, we see variable pricing. Um, so when more electricity is in demand, you pay more for it, especially in places like Texas. We always think about pricing being you know, a price goes up when something is scarce and that could affect how people use it. But you've proposed or you've you've highlighted proposals that are out there where people could be rewarded, paid in a sense for using less. 
How would that work? The way that it works right now is that the utility will usually robocall and say, hey, could you turn down something? Hey, could you not wash your laundry right now? Um, and sometimes they'll say in certain places, now we're going to charge you a lot more money if you do use your electricity. And this is the way of sort of making the customer feel responsible if there's a blackout. And the alternate way is where you actually reward the customer for turning down demand. So it's called islanding. But you would say, if you can take your demand, use your home solar system or the home solar system of your neighbor and remove your demand from the larger grid, we will pay you something for that because it keeps the grid stable and it keeps the power on for everybody else. It's currently not legal in most places, but I think military bases, for example, do use this kind of technology. And I think there's really starts to be a push for it. Gretchen Bakke is our guest. We're speaking with her about the current state and future of the grid. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Solar and wind are not the only sources of uh, carbon-free electricity. There's also nuclear power, which can be, at times, much more reliable than wind or solar. Yet there's a great deal of resistance to that. Well, I think that nuclear is a really great example because there's resistance some places and not other places. It's It's community by community how people feel about nuclear and As a matter of fact, it's community by community how people feel about wind and solar, too. You start to talk to people in Vermont about putting wind turbines up on their hills, and they get really mad really fast. (laughs) Um, So nuclear is great in that it uh, produces a base, what we call a baseline or a baseload of electricity all the time. Um, The other thing that does that really well is hydroelectric power. Hydroelectric power, you can turn up and turn down relatively quickly. Nuclear power, you can turn off quickly um, for obvious reasons, Um, but it's very hard to to adjust in minor ways, and it's very slow to turn on. So you don't want a nuclear power plant as a backup plan, because in Texas, for example, if you'd had a nice nuclear power plant and you needed to turn it on, it would still take you 24 hours to get it up and running. Nuclear will be an answer in certain places, especially places that don't have access to a lot of hydro. You'll see this in the South, I think. Now, you're in Germany where the Green Party and many who are not as far to the left have really seen nuclear as a symbol of something that is very negative and 
after the Fukushima accident, Germany committed to ultimately shutting down all of its nuclear plants in the midst of an attempt to also decarbonize the grid. How's that going? Well, the nuclear shutdown is going pretty well. I think it deserves to be said that France, which is right next door, is 70% nuclear. I believe it's the highest amount of nuclear in their grid of anywhere except Oman. And Germany relies upon that nuclear power. So they've turned off or shut down their own nuclear plants. But like anywhere, Europe has a grid which balances itself according to the resources that are available on that system. And that means there's a huge amount of hydro coming in from Norway, and there's a huge amount of nuclear resource next door in France. So I think it's really important to say that but, um, but it, it's easy to, to think that it's, again, an ideological issue. But actually, that decision was made knowing that they could use the nuclear from the neighbors. True. But hasn't Germany uh, had to rely on coal more than they had hoped? Yeah. So they are very dependent on coal. And even the coal mining, which is being shut down, they're mostly still importing coal from Poland, um, which is cheaper than mining it themselves. So it is an energy transition in that there are coal mining communities that the government is trying to figure out how to take care of. So to move them into other industry manufacturing. And in fact, something that we see in the US and also in Europe is that communities which produced energy, they tend to want to continue to do that. So there's a lot of community level interest in the coal mining regions for staying in the energy game and continuing to provide something of necessity to the nation. And in Germany, that is that transition is kind of a coal to a wind hydrogen mix. So there's a lot of conversation here starting to happen in the U.S. too about using excess renewable electricity um, to produce hydrogen. Um, and then to use yeah, tell us about that because that that's something I've written about a little bit. It seems like a very exciting way to, as you've said, you can't really store energy exactly, but you can convert it to different types that then can be such as hydrogen that can be stored. Tell us how that works. Yes, this wind to hydrogen is called power to X because you can essentially use excess wind energy to make many different kinds of things. And the thing we seem to be focusing on right now is hydrogen because of its energy density. But something that people often don't realize is that wind and solar, but wind especially, often produces too much electricity. And so since we can't store it, what do we do? We waste it. So at a very, very low efficiency, you can use that excess electricity, pass it through water, and actually create hydrogen out of water. That hydrogen can then be stored on site and then used for or put in natural gas pipelines with, it seems like some, there will be, it escapes more easily hydrogen, so there'll be some retrofitting that needs to be done to the pipelines. But if you think about this very robust natural gas pipeline network that we have in Europe and that also exists in the U.S., if that network can be used to carry part of it, at least to carry hydrogen, then suddenly you have this resource for things that you can't plug in easily, like airplanes, cargo ships, 
18-wheelers, even maybe at some point larger passenger cars. And so there's a lot of... Or or, or factories that need a lot of heat to make concrete or Or steel. steel. I mean, you can burn hydrogen a lot like natural gas. Exactly. And steel manufacturing, most especially, like you just can't be done with electricity. You need something that's much, 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 much hotter. So one of the reasons that this technology has not taken off before is because it's really inefficient. But if you have extra electricity, which is what renewables provide, then it does make a lot of sense. And I noticed that Quebec is also building a power to gas plant right now using excess hydro. So it's not only wind, it's like as the technology gets going, we're going to see this popping up all over the place. You've raised a lot of interesting concepts, Gretchen. Are you hopeful that innovation and inventions will help power the way towards a a brighter future for uh, carbon-free energy? I think you have two different storylines. One is that the world is about to go down in flames. And and the other is that somehow we're going to magically make it not go down in flames. And I feel, personally, I don't know which future we're going to get. But I feel like the more interesting story and the more interesting project is to try to figure out how to do something differently. And there's a lot of imagination that is necessary. There's a lot of innovation that is necessary. And then there's this kind of slow moving wave of uh, regulation and sort of government intervention that is coming behind that. And all of these things will need to work together in order for us to build an energy system that is not based on fossil fuels. We've talked a little bit about people's values in terms of how they regard the electric grid. And people tend to talk a lot about which energy sources are best, but they don't often talk about how the grid itself needs to be changed. How do we fix that? So there are a lot of ideas about how we might fix the grid. And one of the ones that is the most popular among people who actually run the infrastructure is to put in a kind of super grid and have way more high voltage lines connecting everything and sort of creating a robust exoskeleton on top of the system we have. And the problem is, is that nobody will let anybody build any power lines anymore. Um, So we have this one really nice solution from the people who know how electricity works. And we have an absolute social rejection of that solution. And on the social side, um, which is also the business side in this case, what we have is a, a giant push for much, much smaller systems that can interlock with each other. Um, And people are calling this the grid of grids. Some people are pushing for nano grids, which means something the size of a house. Some people are pushing for micro grids, which can be the size of a neighborhood. But regardless, it's this much more granular system of things which can connect and disconnect from each other as needed, as I said before. But it seems to be that the solution to changing the infrastructure that it isn't only about changing how we make electricity, but is also changing about how we live in electrical communities with each other, that would need to happen anyway. So watching how it is that the social fabric of infrastructure is changing scale to something much, much smaller, I think is the place to see the innovation that will give us something like a 2070 grid that looks really different. Um, when from you what say we 2070, right what do you mean? I imagine 2070 because the 1970 was this peak moment of the 20th century grid. And the first, very first electric light that was powered by a battery 
in the window of a San Francisco monk's house was in 1870. And the jump that you make from this first electric light bulb in 1870 to the fully formed utility system in 1970 is so vast. It's a huge difference. And so I always think like 2070 should be that far away. We're just over halfway from 1970 to 2070. Gretchen Bakke, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Coming up next, our recommendation and then our conversation. So instead of a new recommendation, Jim, what about an old one? Something yeah. I recommended to you that you took me up on? I've just last night started watching a French show that you recommended, Call My Agent. Uh, the story of a talent agency in Paris that deals with a lot of, of high-strung movie stars. And the agents themselves have pretty dramatic lives. I don't know if a lot of our listeners know this, but I spent years covering entertainment at a variety of different uh, magazines, including Entertainment Weekly. And so I spent a lot of time in L.A., with agents and really observing that whole world. One thing I learned from it was, boy, I'm glad I don't have that job. And this show in a very colorful and amusing ways really confirms that sense of mine that to me, trying to grapple with these power struggles and these temperamental people and, and everything else would be kind of a nightmare. <laughs> Call My Agent is, is downright hilarious. Uh, my recommendation, Jim, is subtitles. There are just so many wonderful television series from countries such as Germany and Norway and other parts of the world that are very much worth watching. So overcoming our reluctance to subtitles is, is my recommendation for this week. So, Jim, this is an area that you've thought about and written about a great deal more than I have. What are your impressions of what we just learned from Gretchen Bakke? Well, she used a phrase that I really loved. She said, this involves the social fabric of infrastructure. And this is a part that is often missed from these discussions. Our values and the way that we want to live and our expectations really shape a lot of the way that policy in, in infrastructure and energy are made. She mentioned the irony of, of people in Vermont, in theory, being very liberal in favor of alternative energy, but not wanting wind turbines on their mountain ridges. And I, I, honestly, I don't really blame them. At the same time, though, Vermont, with overwhelming popular support, shut down their only nuclear power plant and saw their carbon emissions go up dramatically. So sometimes the values we have, the goals we think we want, if we adopt the wrong policies, we don't necessarily achieve those goals. You know, if I would take issue with something in our discussion of energy in Germany, I think their shutting down of nuclear plants has been a huge step backwards for a country that's trying to go zero carbon very aggressively, spending billions and billions of euros on it every year, and yet making really agonizingly slow progress because while they're building wind turbines and solar, they're simultaneously shutting down their best sources of carbon-free power. I think there's a 
there's a problem that we have right now between supply and demand. We all have increasing demand for electricity, but we're struggling with new sources of supply, whether it's uh, ugly wind turbines or or solar panels in beautiful fields or uh, the, the alleged threat of, of nuclear power uh, or pipelines. Maybe the solution, which she hinted at, is more local sources of energy. And then this really interesting thought that perhaps the coal mines of West Virginia uh, are a source of new forms of energy, that, that places that have been used to producing old energy or polluting energy will be very much part of producing uh, innovation and having new kinds of energy. In some cases, uh, you know, I'm I'm not so sure about the coal mines, but I don't think it's any accident that Texas is the country's leading producer of wind power because energy production is such a big part of the tradition of of uh, of that state and the orientation of people, you know, wanting to grow up and build cool things to make energy. If you want to have a lot of wind and solar in different parts of the country, you need to be able to transmit power a lot farther in order to uh, to deal with the times when when you're not making power in your area. And as she says, politically, that's very challenging to build, you know, new high tension power lines across thousands and thousands of miles of the U.S. At the other extreme is this idea of small little microgrids that can disconnect. Now, we could do both things, but until we get batteries that you can keep in your basement or in your neighborhood that allow you to run your little microgrid for days at a time, we're, we're not going to be able to use those as self-sufficient power sources. They're more like a, an, an additional tool we can use to manage the overall grid better. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Thanks so much for joining us on this show. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Our website is DaviesContent.com. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 